if there are no further comments, let's begin with prayer. <coughs> Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou who art Lord of heaven and earth, our ruler over men and nations, and that Thou in Thine own time shall bring forth judgment upon the workers of iniquity. Raise up, we beseech Thee, O Lord, men who will stand with Thee and for Thee against the powers of darkness, against humanistic statism in its every form. Be with Thy suffering saints in Nebraska, behind the Iron Curtain and throughout the world, and strengthen them and give them victory. Bless us now as we study thy word and grant that we may be strengthened in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and again, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. Our subject, work and dominion. Work and dominion. First of all, Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then Second Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The biblical doctrine of work can be very briefly summarized in these two verses. In Genesis 1.28, we have, first of all, a commandment to work. Dominion and subjugation require work to subdue the earth to turn a wilderness into fertile farms and ranches, gardens, requires work. Work was ordained before the fall and there was no curse upon it. Work was very clearly a part of the state of innocence. It is not a product of sin. Then second, the English translation, replenish the earth, creates problems. In the Hebrew, it is very literally to fill. Man has a duty to fill the earth, to colonize, to bring every area under man's dominion. Environmentalists today are motivated by a hatred of God and man. They are hostile to dominion as though it is of necessity destruction. This, of course, is a myth. It is man the sinner who is destructive. 
that redeemed man has a calling to develop the resources and potentialities of the earth. Not to destroy the earth, but to use it. I've heard it argued of late that most of the United States should be returned to national forests and no one be allowed to enter them for any purposes whatsoever. In other words, the earth to be turned back to trees and animals. This is the kind of absurdity that some people are into. Then third, the goal of work should be, we are told, godly dominion. Work is not an end in itself, nor is the monetary income that may be forthcoming from work. It is true that the laborer is worthy of his hire, as we are emphatically told in Scripture. Work and pay cannot be separated but neither can they be equated as though there is nothing more to work than monetary return. Work is an economic fact, but it is, as we saw last time, more than an economic fact. It is also a moral and a theological fact. Where work is reduced to the economic factor alone, productivity declines. The meaning of work then fades away. We saw last time that work is a moral and a religious fact, and the antithesis to work is theft, a point Paul makes emphatically in Ephesians. When man is given to a belief that work is a matter of economics and Marxism is the epitome of it, then work loses its productivity. Men lose the incentive to work and the desire to work because it is now equated with the economic results pure and simple. Meaning goes out of it. The more a country reduces work to economics, the lower its productivity. This is why in Marxist countries, productivity is at an historic low. But when man is free of humanism, he will work in terms of God's calling and under God for his family for personal realization, and for more. This is why when people ask me if they should go into a particular profession, I ask them why they are interested in going into that. And if they tell me they are interested in law or medicine or anything else because of the monetary angle, I tell them it's an overcrowded field. Stay out of it. But if they have a feeling that this is what they want to do, they have a calling. I tell them, forget about all the economic factors. If this is what your life is to be, then live it in terms of your calling. And I have found that those who have gone with such a motive 
have never regretted it. When men are governed purely by economic <coughs> motives, when men are governed by purely economic motives, they self-destruct. We are called to work for dominion in terms of the covenant, in terms of the kingdom of God, and only when our motivation is at the highest level, the religious level, are we most productive. The Ten Commandments says, Six days shalt thou labor. The seventh is to be for rest. The six days we labor are for work, not only at our place of employment, but around the house. We are commanded to work. Both work and rest are required in the law. Then forth, God, in giving the command to work and to exercise dominion, blesses God in the process, uh, blesses man in the process. And God blessed them, and by blessing them, ordained that they should work. So that work is given as a blessing. When men do not work, they begin to fall apart. Work is a blessing, not a curse. After the fall, the total life of man was under the curse, not merely work. But work is blessed. It is pronounced happy and good, fulfilling for man. As we give ourselves to godly work, we pass from the curse to blessings and to dominion. Now, fifth, we must say that the dominion mandate to multiply, to replenish the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion, separates work from necessity. This is a very important point. For most of the world, work is a necessity. They work to eat. And that's it. For them, deliverance from work is a privilege and a blessing. They regard work as a curse. And freedom from work as a privilege. And they say with envy of others, he doesn't have to work. Any society with such a goal is in serious trouble. The goal of life is then non-productivity and play, and ultimately death. When a society begins to get such an ideal as ours and the whole world today have, disintegration sets in. Production in every area begins to go down and you begin to have an elite. An elite is a leisure class. 
or as some would say, a leisure class. And when you have a leisure class, you have a culture in decay, a culture in decline, because its leading element, its ruling element, its pace-setting element is parasitic. And where a parasitic element is ruled as the elite and is envied, the goal of the whole of society is parasitism. Only those elements in the society which reject that ideal can perpetuate social order. When that element is destroyed by the forces that govern the society, as under Marxism, the whole of the society begins to collapse. Moreover, when you have the rise of a leisure class as the elite, it means also the rise of statism. Priority is then given to money and power over faith and work. Today we can see what's happened because on films and in television series we see the elite class, the non-working element as the envied ones and those who are the producers as the despised element. The businessman, the capitalist, is almost invariably the villain. The worker in modern thinking is often idealized and presented as a great figure, but when you analyze what they mean by worker, they do not mean what you and I think of as a worker, but a revolutionist in the ranks which is not a producer. So that the term worker for them is a synonym for a revolutionist, not a producer. Thus, to reduce work to a necessity is to have a false view of society, one which creates an elite, a dangerous, a parasitic elite. This ideal was presented very baldly and loudly in the 1960s. A work-free world was called for. The student revolutionaries insisted that science was capable of eliminating work, and therefore education should be for play, for leisure. And it was a capitalistic plot, the students said, to educate for work. That ideal has not disappeared. The revolutionary ferment has gone out of it, but it is still very present as any penetration of the world of the media quickly reveals. Work and self-discipline are despised because they are alien to the world of leisure. It is interesting to me that the music produced in recent years that I find 
on the average of a higher quality is some of the film score music because writing for a film score imposes upon a musician a discipline and that discipline brings out better work than he performs on his own apart from the film score in all too many cases. Elitism is anti-work. Its goal is a superior status, power, and money. And the role of elitism has been a deadly one throughout history. Its classic is Plato's Republic. Elitism has had an ugly history from ancient times to the present. Its force in this country has been destructive. We saw elitism rise in both the North and the South prior to 1860. As a matter of fact, the appeal of slavery was essentially to the elitists. And the result of northern and southern elitism was one of the great disasters of our history. Elitism is an abdication of responsibility in favor of power and control. And there is a difference. A man can control his family with no sense of responsibility. Many men do. They insist on ruling their children and their wives with an iron hand, and it's control only for the sake of control for the sake of throwing their weight around without any sense of responsibility. And what they mean by control is power and self-exaltation. Elitism also means exclusivism because elitism has no legitimate ground for claiming superiority. It is interesting that when New York began to formulate its concept very self-consciously of an elite, it came out with the 400. Most of them were upstarts. They were not a true aristocracy in any sense of the word. They were a self-styled elite and they gained status in that list of the 400 in terms of the amount of money they spent in terms of leisure, in terms of display. If an elitist travels, he wants untouched places whereby he can separate himself from other men because there is no way the elite can ever separate themselves from others except in terms of snobbishness. They have no real caliber. The goal of elitism is power, control, money, and status. 
it may pay lip service to equalitarianism, but it is destructive of it. What elitism hates most is work and a hierarchy. A hierarchy of power. Why? The essence of a true hierarchy is power. Religious power. The word hierarch comes from two Greek words meaning sacred and rule. A hierarchy means a leadership that has authority on religious grounds and rules in terms of the Word of God. A hierarchy, therefore, is something that we as Christians must believe in. Now we can differ as to what a true hierarchy is. But a Christian must affirm a belief in a hierarchy as against an elite. Because the one is anti-God, its emphasis is on freedom from work, and the other places its emphasis on the authority of God and upon exercising authority subject entirely to the word of God. An elite order is therefore a man-made order, an anti-productive order, a statist order. But a hierarchy works to create a free order when it is faithful to its premises in which man is under God's rule not man's. The modern state, of course, is elitist. All over the world we have civil governments which are, in varying degrees, elitist in some form. They may call themselves democracies or republics, fascist states or dictatorships, or Marxist governments. But they are elitists they deny the premises of a hierarchy rule under God. Both elitism and hierarchy have to do with dominion. But both seek dominion on varying grounds. Elitism denies work. The elite make others work. In hierarchy, the greater the authority, the greater the responsibility, the greater the work. The one is the way of life, and the other fulfills the premises of Proverbs 8.36, that all they that hate me love death. We live in a world of elitism. We must work to establish a world under God's law, a world of hierarchies. Only therein is our freedom. Let us pray. O Lord our God, make us faithful workers in thy vineyard. 
servants of thy kingdom, ever zealous to be obedient to thy rule. Our Lord and our God, thou seest how the ungodly seek dominion over thy church, over thy people. Confound them in their iniquity. Raise up men. Raise up faithful soldiers for thy kingdom. Bless those that are on the front lines and give victory unto them to the end that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. The one thing that uh, you didn't exhaust was the scripture that seems to suggest that there is somehow a, a curse on work was the one where Adam was cast out of the garden and Eve. What would you respond? To yes. Uh, we did deal with that last week, I believe, or the week before. But the curse was on man and upon the ground and upon everything he was and did. It was not merely upon work. It was upon the totality of man's life. So that uh, it's a serious mistake to limit it to work. He was told now that work which was a blessing was going to be frustrating. Because work which is to be a joy to give man a sense of dominion was now going to have frustration. But as we move out from under the curse into Christ, then our work becomes progressively more and more blessed, more and more happy. Now, in a sin-filled world, it's going to have problems. But by and large, we are the people who enjoy our work. And to the others, it's drudgery. And it's because we've moved from the realm of the curse to the realm of the blessing. So it begins and ends with us. Are we ourselves under the curse or are we under God's blessing? And we'll take that blessing into work, into play, into everything. Yes? Well, I agree with your comments uh, I think it's ironic that in corporations for instance the higher up you go the harder you have to work but most people think of it in terms of the perks and in art there's a tendency to confuse art with play so we have a lot of uh, dilettantes that rush into art figuring that it's very easy and uh, a historian, popular historian, once said that most artists come from the working class because they are workers. 
and aristocrats, on the other hand, seek to make an art of their lives. Mm. But beyond that, on the whole question of the elite, I think you're talking about a false elite, and a, an artificial elite, in the sense that the hereditary aristocracy became a thief when they ceased to be responsible for the people in their areas, the baronets uh, became a burden. But on the other hand, I think that the natural aristocracy of man is about all that can keep the despot from completely suppressing everybody. Unless we have intermediate levels of power, there's nothing between the despotism and the proletariat. I would agree emphatically. I would say that, uh, first of all, the corporation is hated because there's a natural hierarchy there, a hierarchy of power, of responsibility, and the work increases as you go up. I would say also that in the world of art, uh, we have had a great deal of corruption by the idea that art is play, and the result has been a world of pseudo-art. I believe that a natural aristocracy, to use the Jeffersonian term, represents a natural hierarchy, because the word elite has always been associated with a leisure class, by blood, uh, separated from work, or by having attained riches through what their father or grandfather did. They are separated from work. So when you trace the idea of the elite, it's different from a natural aristocracy or a hierarchy. It has always associated itself with leisure and with irresponsibility so that uh, when you've had an elite that doesn't have blood behind it you had things like uh, lighting a, a cigar with a hundred dollar bill which was done once or twice in the latter half of the last century by show-offs and those were the days when a hundred dollar bill went a long way to support a working man a uh, better part of a year almost. So uh, I would never regard an, a natural aristocracy as an elite. An elite has always been associated with a non-working class. But a natural aristocracy with those who have proven themselves by going forth into the world of ideas or art or any area and manifesting a quality. So you have a natural hierarchy that arises in these fields. Now, one of the things that uh, the pseudo-artists you spoke of have done is to destroy the idea of work they waged war against the academy in art. Well, in some respects, that was up to a point necessary because we know, and the battle took place especially in France, the academy had become stuffy. 
and it had become politicized. So it was an academy that uh, represented uh, a kind of an established order and wanted to keep others in line. But what happened finally when the academies were overthrown was that uh, work was overthrown. About 20 years or more ago, one artist of the old school, a very successful and able uh, painter, called attention to the fact that the discipline of working with paints, of mixing them, of knowing what stood the test of time, of what faded and what didn't, and so on. All the technical skills were disappearing simply because there was this rebellion against discipline in the arts. So he felt that uh, we were creating a generation of primitives who would sometime down the line have to recapture what artists a hundred years ago knew. So the new idea is of the art uh, artist as a primitive prophet who simply expresses himself. Now that's elitism of the newer sort as against the elitism of blood. I do believe we're talking about the same thing. It's just that I feel the word elite has to, and has to be reserved to that and aristocracy of a true sort, a natural aristocracy associated with hierarchy because it represents work. Yes, John? Uh, well, just two quick observations. It's almost like the first one, social welfare, is a member of a kind of an inverse elite uh, <laughs> uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but the other thing, uh, in keeping what you said about art, artists becoming lazy, uh, that's that later on they justify that, that laziness by giving it very specialized names. For example, when an, when an actor can't find, doesn't have the ability or the training to figure a way how, out of, of trying to resolve some difficulty in a scene, he does an improvisation. Mm -hmm. And improvisation then becomes a thing in itself, when in reality improvisation is nothing more for the actor anyway, then then um, uh, a, a way of justifying his incompetence. He can't figure out why the character should do one thing and not another, so he does an improvisation and hopes that something magical and accidental will come out of that. You see an awful lot of films that have been made that way. I just saw one the other night, Freebie and the Bean, uh, with James Caan and, and Alan Arkin, and about half that picture was one improvisation after another. And as, the, as a result of that, the picture is, is totally disjointed. But improvisation is a, is a substitute most of the time for not knowing, not doing the homework and things of that nature. And then they justify it by elevating improvisation itself into a new art form. And then we saw for almost 25 years, we've seen now how the improvisational theaters have been the in yes. theater uh, in both the West and East Coast and in the Midwest as well. And many of the actors that we have now uh, grew out of improvisational kinds of theaters. And, uh, but that's just one example of how, how not knowing through lack of work and lack of commitment and what have you, what to do 
you then justify it in the art community anyway by inventing something which is then later justified as a new form of expression. Yes. Well, the, the triumph of the undisciplined yes. is what we've seen. Yes. And uh, several rock stars have uh, produced books in which they string phrases, mostly obscene, one after another, and call it poetry, and uh, are insistent that uh, these are going to be classics simply because they've produced them on the instantaneous uh, improvising basis. Supposedly, you tap inspiration by being totally undisciplined. Yes. Um, what John said about when they improvise, they hope that something magical will happen. It seems that the general public kind of glorifies this because they hope this would happen in their own life. As far as they don't work and they hope something magical will happen, and they'll at 16, why don't I own a house and and everything else? And they sit back and hope something magical will happen. I guess they glorify this in actors and the arts. When, the desire for it to happen it, to themselves. Yes, and at the same time you have the rise of gambling. Yeah. Because when you believe in uh, something other than work, you're going to believe that, believe that chance will produce something. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you will have an increase in gambling. But I don't believe that that's alien to the uh, many Christians' attitudes. No, well, that isn't. is to say, if I pray for it hard enough and long enough, it'll come. Yes. Without my having to render to that the duty yes. required. That's right. Because a lot of so-called Christians are really uh, in the church, but not of it. They are there to get things. Their attitude is not as Paul, when he was converted, he said... Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? Their attitude is, Lord, what are you going to give me? And that's not Christianity. They go to God to get things, not to take orders from God to go out and serve him. But the service then becomes the greatest getting, because I think that this message you gave this morning was so mm -hmm. meaningful in light of the fact that our suggestion contains that really is a very significant essence of our lives. Yes. The worthwhileness that we not only exhibit and produce, but gain in, within, through that service or work, whichever. That makes life meaningful and people are so slavish when they have to work just for money or existence. We have a great many church people who go to church morning and evening and in the midweek and regard themselves as the very precious saints of Christ who have only one purpose in life and that's to get something from God. And they believe they are super holy. I uh, wrote about that attitude two or three times in my California Farmer column. And I had a series of uh, hysterical 
letters from uh, a woman who was convinced I was of the devil because I said those things. And uh, she kept writing that she was going to pray that I'd be saved and stop attacking Christians. Well, it was obvious that uh, I'd hit her because her letters indicated that uh, God existed for one thing, to give her what she wanted. And she was super sanctimonious and an unbeliever in my book because there was no sense of the sovereignty of God and the fact that we are called to serve him, not he to serve us. And that's what they believe, that God is there to serve me. You have a sizable group in the church who opposes the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord, although the term Lord is applied to him more than any other. He's just our Savior. He's not our Lord. Uh, that's insanity in my book, and it's certainly un unbelief. Yes. Uh, some time ago I came across a, a book on Buddhist economics. I, <laughs> uh, the title itself uh, <laughs> aroused my curiosity enough to, to thumb through it. I didn't look at it at any length, but it, it was interesting to see that uh, there was a lot of borrowing going on in that book insofar as the uh, number of issues that were covered, including work, yes. were clearly Christian in their context. Um, my question is: Do other religions? Well, let me let me ask it this way. On several occasions, you have uh, mentioned that uh, IQ tests, where they can be trusted, mm -hmm. have indicated that uh, that the man uh, is dominant over the woman in at least one area, but probably not the rest, and that is what they refer to as aggression, what we would refer to as dominion, mm -hmm. if, I, if I understood you correctly. And in that dominion, uh, it would seem that the Christian form of dominion would be, as you explained this morning in your, in your uh, sermon, to uh, exercise his or her talent in terms of subduing the earth and for God's glory. Now, in humanism, if I understand it correctly, it, it switches that dominion around from work to, to a position of power yes. and power over others. Now, my question is, in religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism and the other uh, world religions and cults and what have you, do they have a concept or a doctrine of dominion? And if they do, uh, how do they express that? And is it any different than humanism, actually? Well, I couldn't go into all the religions. I'll just deal with Buddhism, because that's what you began by mentioning. And by the way, the borrowings by all religions are very extensive. It's sad that uh, Christians don't feel the Bible is worth taking anything from, you know, <laughs> except the idea that somehow they're saved. But these other groups are. The Buddhists, by the way, have adopted one song for children. Buddha loves me, this I know. <laughs> it's very popular now in Buddhism. <laughs> 
uh, I forget. Uh, <laughs> I've forgotten the second line. I used to know it. But uh, for them, dominion is something you renounce. Buddha was a king, Gautama Buddha was a king who renounced power because everything is meaningless. And you seek to be uninvolved. You uh, recognize that uh, to be involved in the world or to be too much separated from it is to give too much meaning to everything. So that the one goal of life, really, is to mark time until the end, and you enter into nothingness, ultimate nothingness. Meanwhile, you let nothing mean anything to you. Well, there's a great deal of that in Hinduism as well. And hence, in Buddhist countries and Hindu countries, there is an unconcern about the conditions of peoples. You're only concerned about your own deliverance from the misery of existence or reincarnation. Dominion is a biblical concept. Yes? In line with what you just said, in, the, in my, my own studies of Buddhism, uh, particularly in Drummond's book on Gautama, uh, the Buddha, uh, he points out a number of things that Buddha said uh, which are supposed to be very, very authoritative, which the majority of the Buddhists nowadays don't talk about. Mm -hmm. Okay, And one of those is light, right in line with what you just got through saying. And Buddha said on many occasions that Buddhism was not for everyone. It was only for a, a certain few who were capable of seeing, you know, the, and arriving at nirvana, you know, the Eightfold Noble Path Dharma to nirvana. But what Buddha did say I thought was very, very interesting. He said, some of you people are going to have to continue to work to support us who can achieve nirvana. So in a sense, it was a, Buddhism was a kind of a, of a, of a spiritual elitist yes, uh, exactly. that gave Buddha the leisure to pursue his his uh, own spiritual development, but everyone else had, of course, to sacrifice for Buddha's betterment. Now, that was a point that, 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 that Drummond made in his book on, on Buddha yes. that I thought was extremely interesting. A very good point. Well, our time is up, so let's conclude now with prayer. Our Lord and our God, it is good for us to be here. We thank Thee that Thy Word is truth, that Thy Word speaks plainly to our every condition and gives us marching orders in terms of which we can bring all things into captivity to Jesus Christ. Make us ever obedient and faithful and ever victorious in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.